You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, it's Noons here. Great to have you along for the ride. This is the V8 Salute Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Available at Repco in Australia and New Zealand, as well as a range of other auto stores. Now, in honour of my guest on the pod this week, I could have done this opener from in a hot air balloon, in a lake, or perhaps at a roulette wheel at a Surface Paradise casino, but with no visual medium, this is podcasting after all, that would have been going just a bit too far with things and if you're a fan of our guest Gary Wilkinson you'll get those references in fact we talk about it on the pod the stories behind some of those great openers from the Channel 7 Touring Car Championship round telecasts of the 1980s now Wilco as you know and love him formed a huge part of the Channel 7 Motorsport telecast team for more than two decades but beyond motorsport he did so much more in radio and television particularly in news sport with a big emphasis on covering top tier stuff. Summer and Winter Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, the Australian Open, Bathurst 1000 and so much more. He's a guy I've been really keen to get on the podcast and it was a real pleasure to sit down and have a catch up with Wilco at his home in northern New South Wales. Now this year marks the 60th anniversary of the great race at Bathurst and it also marks 25 years since Wilco's last Bathurst telecast, which was the Channel 7 Bathurst Super Touring AMP 1000 in 1998. And as you'll hear on this podcast, it's a race he didn't want to cover. There's plenty of other topics in this tab, not just that one as well. There's all sorts of stuff, and the best part is there's two parts of Wilco, because one part is never enough. So settle in. Get your backside trackside on the V8 Sleuth podcast polished by Bowden's own premium car care as I sit down with Gary Wilkinson. Wilco, hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Well, I'm surprised that you're here. I'm surprised that I'm of interest to anybody. Oh, come on now. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. I tell you what, for probably the last 12 to 18 months, I've had a hit list. Uh-huh. In a good way, in a good way, okay. not a bad way. Where's the gun? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> for the guest list of this podcast. And I've got to tell you, my wife's been saying for a year and a half, you have to get Wilco. Oh, God. So we've got Wilco today. It's official. You're here. You're the on. reason it surprises me is that I'm coming up for my 64th year in broadcasting, radio and television combined, and my actual involvement in the coverage of motorsport only occupied 25 of those years and I haven't been involved actively for the past 25 yeah. years, and yet it Here generates more interest 
than anything else I've ever done. Do you still get people stop you in the street and stuff like that? Yes, and in supermarkets and all sorts of places and people who, some people who recognise me, despite the grey hair and everything else, but a lot of people, not until after I've spoken three or four sentences, and they say, I know that, (laughs) I know you. I'll tell you a funny story. Mm. I had to have a biopsy on my temple, on my right temple. I got to the hospital, the doctor was running late, they took me down to the theatre, got me all prepped, covered my head with a sheet, preparatory to him walking in to make the incision. And so the only bit that was visible was the bit they were going to... Was my right ear, basically, and my right temple. And he walked in, he said, oh, good morning, hello, how are you today, speaking to me. And I said, I'm good, thanks, blah, blah, blah. And we had a chat and after about a minute and a half, he said, he paused and he said, I know that voice. He said, motor racing, Channel 7. You can't go anywhere, can you? No. (laughs) Bizarre. (laughs) I love it. It's fantastic. And as you said, it's been a long time since. But you've you've been at the Muscle Car Masters. We did a couple of those TV shows together. We had some good fun doing that. And look, the people that I know and the people that I've met and the people that I've remained in contact with, friends and associates through motorsport, today, even today, is extraordinary. Mm. Extraordinary. It's great, isn't it? It's as you said, so 25 of over 60 years, but it's been 25 since you last were doing Bathurst on TV, which was the, the two-litre race in, yeah. in 98, which I know you didn't want to do. No. <laughs> well, that's, that's a whole other topic. We might get onto that one um, a little bit later. There's a quote of yours that you've been quoted on a couple of times over the journey that I've seen, and I, and I love it. Never refuse a combat assignment is what Man, your dad told you. held me in good stead. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere in life. I mean, I left school with dubious employment prospects, I've got to say. Were you a rat bag? Well, I had a misspent youth in terms of education anyway. Only exams I ever passed were English and history, Mm. nothing else ever. Uh, And, yes, that was my old man's, uh, part of my old man's uh, good advice. And when the first opportunity came up, I thought, well, I may as well give it a go, and I put my hand up. And that got me into broadcasting to start with. And it was the same with... Uh, television. I, I had a dispute with the people who were managing the radio station I was at and I hawked myself around to various television institutions, had never been in a TV studio in my life. And I got a call back from Channel 7 and to do sporting stories for the news specifically. But I was only there a oh, very short space of time and they parted company with their main tennis commentator of the time and I knew that there was they were looking for somebody, so I just let it be known quietly that I was interested. And I bumped the general manager in the corridor one day, and I said, I, "I need to speak to you." He said, "Yes, I know, I know." He said, "You're a terrific tennis commentator. Send me a memo." So I went straight to the office, wound the paper into the typewriter, and I said, "Dear Ted, you asked me to remind you that I'm a terrific tennis commentator." Signed it and sent it back, and I had the job the next day. And this is Ted Thomas. Ted Thomas, yeah, who. Passed away very mm. recently at the age of 95, very sadly. One of the great executives of, of television and a great a great gentleman. You talked to Gary about when you grew up. Did you grow up overseas? I spent, I spent quite a bit of time either in Borneo, in the Sultanate of Brunei, or transiting between Brunei and boarding school in Sydney. Um, uh, I loved boarding school, but boarding school didn't love me. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? Because <laughs> I was always 
somewhere I wasn't supposed to be doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. <laughs> so were you a ratbag or not? You didn't answer that no, question no, I, earlier. I, 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 well, I don't know. If you'd spoken to the headmaster at the time, probably. Maybe. But um, I, I was adventurous and oh. anti-authoritarian. <laughs> the way you put this, this is very good, this is very good. Um, one of the standard elements in that story that you told about the surgery before, it's the voice. Where, where did that – did you hone that? Was it God-given? How did it come? Because it is trademark Wilco. Well, this comes right back to never refuse a combat assignment. I was living in the Sultanate of Brunei in a very small minority English-speaking European expatriate mm. population. Why were we there for family? My father work, worked for the government there yep. as an engineer. Yep. And a friend of mine had a part-time job transcripting news into English for their one of their part-time English-speaking announcers who got sick or I can't remember, left and they needed somebody to fill a slot. It was only two shifts a week, two hours on a Thursday and, or an hour, no, two hours on Thursday and four hours on Sunday. I put my hand up and I went in and I spoke to the program manager of the station and he said, yes, 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 yes. He said, look, I'm desperate. He said, and you're the only person available who can speak English. He said, so you've got the job. He said, but you can have it on one condition. I said, yes, what's that? He said, he said you've got to get rid of that awful Australian accent. And it was primarily a British expat mm. population. Uh, and the station had been set up along the lines of a miniature BBC, right, in the middle of the jungles of Borneo. And so I had to work the vowels. Give it a little more. Uh, uh, yes, which made it difficult to get a job when I eventually returned to Australia because I went to every station in Sydney and knocking on doors and doing auditions and being told, very nice, but don't you think you'd be better suited at the ABC? Yeah, I was going to say, very ABC, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's how I got into broadcasting, by putting my hand up. And that's how I got into television, by putting my hand up. That's how I got into tennis, by putting a hand up. Motor racing was a slight variation on that theme. I was in the uh, sports department at Channel 7. I hadn't been at Channel 7 very long, barely. And, and when are we talking here, like late 70s? 70s? Yeah, late 70s, yep. Somewhere around there. Yep. Um, I'd only been there um, barely 12 months, I guess. And a guy walked into the office uh, late on a Friday afternoon, about 5 or 6 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And he said, ah, he said, you're the new fellow. And I said, uh, yes. That's a worry. He, he said... Um, I'm the head of engineering. I said, oh, yes, nice to meet you, Mr. Healy. Uh-huh. He said, uh, he said, I wonder <laughs> I see if where you, this is going. Yeah, this is it. He said, I wonder if you could help us out. He said, uh, one of our commentators for the motor racing on Sunday at Amaru, mm -hmm. which is now a housing settlement, yep. a suburb or something, uh, he said, is called in sick, can't make it up. He said, do you think you could help us out with a bit of commentary? Oh, I paused for about a second and a half. I said, sure, why not? Well, I walked onto the Amarib track on the Sunday morning and that was the first time I'd ever set foot on a motor racing circuit and I'd never, ever called a car race in my life. But did you have any interest in it beforehand? No. no. Vague well, awareness at best. When I worked in, in radio at 2UE in Sydney <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, I had occasion to interview 
on ra- by uh, telephone, on radio, um, Brock Moffat, uh, a couple of other people, when Bathurst was on. Mm. You know, you know, just, just the, the one time a year that the yeah, generals, yeah. media care about. Correct, race. about a yeah. three-minute or five-minute interview in a in a general sports program by telephone. Never met the people, had no interest in car racing. All I knew was what I ripped off the AAP printer, the qualifying times, <laughs> and who was in front and why. Um, so that was that was my sum total knowledge, as, as Crompton likes to remind me. Wilco, he said, your only uh, strength, he said, in motorsport is to call the red car in front of the blue car. Someone's got to do it. Someone's <laughs> got to do it. If no one knows who's in the red car or the blue car, then well, it doesn't work. Doesn't that, work. That's right. And look. But once you were in, you were in. It wasn't a case of you filled in once, that was it, see you later, thanks for your help. It, well, how, well, why did why did it continue? Well, I would, well, that's interesting. I was filling in. I didn't realise and when I stepped into the lion's den <laughs> that I was filling in for Evan Green, mm. <laughs> who was the master of the art at that, that time. And I was working with a new guy who'd not long been at Channel 7 called Mike Raymond. Mm. But I soon discovered, and Channel 7 obviously, and Jeff Healy obviously had realised that Mike Raymond and Evan Green were like mixing oil and water. They were so diametrically opposed uh, in terms of their approach to commentary on the sport. It wasn't funny. And I think I survived because they needed a buffer between the two of them. Well, because in Mike you had the showman, the speedway Over the promoter, top, the, the Americanisms, all that stuff. And, and Evan with the leather patches on the elbow and, and the, uh, the subdued yeah. presentation and yeah. the very proper. Uh, yes. You were kind of the barrier. I was the barrier <laughs> between the two. Um, but I survived. Don't ask me how. Uh, but I survived with the help of an extraordinary number of people, participants in motorsport because – the first thing I realised that to survive, because I had absolutely, and I still have no background or knowledge of the technicalities or the mechanics of motorsport, but motorsport is about people, personalities. Exactly. More than anything else. Those cars don't move an inch without people, without mechanics, without drivers, without input from all sorts of people. It's the people and the stories that make the sport. Mm. And that's more prevalent than ever in its need now because the cars are pretty much all the same. So in those days, the cars were different well, the car- and the people were different. But now when we've got all the cars pretty much the same, we need the people to be very different. Well, you'll get an argument from certain people involved in motorsport as whether, to whether or not the cars really are all the same because someone's always bitching. Oh, oh that's not changed. <laughs> that's not changed at all. If there's anything that's ever stayed... the same is that someone's unhappy and moaning and groaning. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Uh, other reason I think that um, I, sub- I had to provide a point of difference, not just a point of difference between me and Mike Raymond or me and Evan Green or me and Neil Crompton, ultimately. Um, I was prepared to stick my head up and, if necessary, have it chopped off. Um, uh, I was prepared to make an idiot 
of myself. Are we talking telecast openers here? Yeah, as well? yeah, yeah. Well, no one else would do it, so that's right. Why not? I mean, and it helped to brand the telecast. Mm-hmm. It helped to make people sit up. Even the drivers and they used to say, "What are you going to do this week, Wilco? What's what's on this time? What are you going to do today? How are you going to top the Ned Kelly thing?" Yeah. And look, I had more adventures and more fun in 25 years in motorsport than in all of the other events and years put together. Hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because you've done some amazing stuff and seen some amazing things in Olympics, Cobb Games, Australian Open, um, all sorts of stuff yeah. around the place, but that motor racing holds a special place in your heart is, is heartwarming to well, you Well, yeah, motor racing and the people. The people make motorsport, as I said, and, um, uh, and I, I'm still in touch with so many of them. And wouldn't have would not have survived twelve months in the gig if it hadn't been for um, the support, the encouragement, uh, the advice, and the gentle criticism to steer me in the right direction occasionally, or more often than occasionally, uh, that I had from, like I said, a, an amazing list of of people. Some of them still around today. Mm. As we're sitting here, we're a couple of months out as we're recording this from Bathurst. It's that time of year. We're sort of on the run-up towards it. 60th anniversary this year, which is uh, going to be really well celebrated yeah, around the yeah. place. We love an anniversary in sport and in motor racing. So late 70s, the Bathurst – well, Bathurst on 7, 70s and 80s and early 90s was massive. It was really huge, huge in terms of the, the numbers that it generated. Of course – in that time, there's no social media, there's no fragmentation, there's no digital channels, there's no pay TV, no. there's no um, YouTube, there's no Netflix, there's none of that stuff. It was only there's, one outlet. Yeah, one place, that's it. So the numbers were huge through the roof. But tell me about preparing because you've sort of had, as you said before, Mike was the, the showman and had all the nicknames and all the Americanisms. Evan brought the Evan straightness of motorsport and the knowledge and the, the connection. I always hear about and have seen and worked with a lot of callers over the years and mm. people in television, and they've all got different ways of preparing. Some don't like to over-prepare because they want to have a genuine reaction to <laughs> what unfolds. Some prepare way too much and there's a whole pile of content they will never, ever use, and I probably did that for a long time, but I felt it made me feel prepared. Yeah. Where did you fit in that scale? Were you meticulous in going, look, I don't know the cars, I don't know the technicalities, but I can know who's who in the zoo and I'm going to put a lot of time into to making sure that I'm across all that. Who's who? That mm. was my fallback. Um, and, of course, cars were multi-coloured. So that – Blue car, red car, <laughs> green car, black car. <laughs> so that put an end to that. And like I said, I never had a, 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 a real grasp of the technicalities. But having said that, if it weren't for people like um, – the late Frank Gardner, mm. who was a wonderful man to for I could go to Frank, or he would come to me, and say, "Listen, uh, what you say about that—that's not right. This is what you need to know." <laughs> Alan Moffat, um, Fred, and Christine Gibson. Those three. There were many others, but those three uh, gave me more encouragement, support, assistance, advice in those early days. Um, and I took that on board and and I learned the language 
of motorsport. It's very unique. It's yeah. very, very bespoke. I learned the language of motorsport, even if I didn't understand some of the <laughs> things I was talking about. I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, I thought I was getting away with it reasonably well. Um, and then must have been oh, mid-80s, 80, 86, maybe 87, 86. I was walking through the paddock at um, Oran Park, which apart from being a suburban enclave, no longer exists mm. as a racetrack. I was walking through the paddock at Oran Park. We'd just come off air after a four-hour telecast. And a kid come running up to me in the paddock with this look of angst on his face. And he said, hey, Wilco. He said, I've just realised something. He said, you've got no freaking idea what you're talking about. He said, you, you, you're just making this up as you go along. How's that for instant feedback? Well, actually, he, he worked with us at, at Channel 7. Uh, he'd, he'd only been on the crew for uh, barely uh, 12 months, but he did show some promise as a commentator. And I just looked at him and I smiled and I said, welcome to television, Crompton. <laughs> because it's about entertainment. Right? Yes, the cars are fantastic and the technicality and all of that that goes on under the – it's all amazing stuff with computers and cameras and Christ knows what else. But it's got to be – there's got to be colour and movement and personality. Mm. Otherwise, it's dead in the water. Mm. Who was your favourite personality back in the day? Who you knew you could get mileage from? <laughs> Dick Johnson. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> anytime you were stuck for something, just go to Dick. Yeah. Um, yep. And you'd get exactly what you wanted. Peter Williamson, the late mm. Peter Williamson. I mean, um, the original race cam man, axe in the boot man, uh, always alert and alive to a commercial opportunity, <laughs> Williamson. He <laughs> was uh, a car dealer after all. So. Exactly right. Um, but look, there were, there were plenty of others. Uh, Fred Gibson, I mentioned in a more subtle way. Moffat, look, a lot of people had a very difficult relationship with Moffat, or maybe I should say Moffat had a very difficult relationship with a lot of other people. But for some, I don't know what instinctive reason, I cottoned on early to, to Moffat. I mean, I just knew that he was a chronically shy, a shy person. And he had to focus on detail to such an extent that he couldn't bear any intrusion. And so the first time I was ever asked, mate, go and get a grab from Moffat. We need that for this story. Right? I'd zip down to the pits, walk into the garage, and Moffat would be there, the bonnet would be up, and there'd be four or five uh, mechanics and half a dozen journos all standing around and, Moffat was getting irritable and I'd stand in the corner and I'd stand and I'd stand and I knew eventually that I'd catch his eye and I'd just raise an eyebrow and he'd just put his hand up like stop. So I'd stay and I'd stay and eventually, in the meantime, somebody's screaming in my ear, Wilco, where's that freaking grab with Moffat? Come on. Eventually, he'd nod and call me over and I'd put the microphone in front of him I said, listen, Alan, what about... And I'd get 30 seconds, 40 seconds, whatever was required and I'd leave again. And that happened once, twice, three, four and it built up a relationship and I never intruded. 
I never intruded. I just waited where I knew I'd catch his eye and eventually he'd nod and I'd get what I wanted. Hmm. And I look, I love him off. Um, unfortunately, he's not the man he used to be. Hmm. Um, his memory is severely uh, depleted. Uh, but I speak to his carer um, every month or two or three uh, just to see how he's travelling. Um, last time I had an opportunity uh, when I was in Melbourne, I had, uh, I had lunch with the two of them. Um, and I think it took him 20 minutes to finally hone in on as to hmm. where I fitted into the picture and we had a lovely conversation thereafter. Um, I just got the greatest respect for the bloke. Hmm. Do you reckon he's over the journey been misunderstood? He was, he was so intense, he was so focused, he was – and Crompton's talked to me about this before where Neil was petrified of him as a young bloke to <laughs> yeah. go and do the same thing you just described yeah. and, and go and have a chat and get a get a, a quote or a, a grab. And for our listeners, a grab is a, a little interview, very short, sharp, mm. little comment, that like what you see in the news basically yeah. for those who might not be sure what we're talking about. But the other thing that Neil said that he twigged to was that with Alan it was – and it's a little bit the same way as the story that you told. Neil figured that to connect there was to book an appointment. You're in, in essence having a business engagement because he's a businessman. Mm-hmm. He's dealing in a business. His business is driving race cars, preparing race cars, winning Bathurst. That's his business. Mm-hmm. So if you made a, a time to go see him down at Turak Road at the, the workshop that's no longer there, uh, he got a different guy. That's because correct. Because the way that you engage, I think that's a little lesson in life to you sort of get what you give kind of thing. You can't or couldn't. You can't strong arm Moffat. Mm. You can't push or rush Moffat into anything. You've got to move at his pace. Mm. Um, so Crompton was right and I was right, fortunately for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> we talked Crompton and you talked that story about the the, bloke, the young bloke giving you a serve over or, or a bit of, bit of fun about that you, you don't know anything. Uh, tell me about it. Did you guys try to corrupt him back in the day? Because he's always been straighty 180. Oh. And he would – I'm just vision. this is before my time so you can paint the picture here. Is he the guy in the red jacket era – that would go back to the hotel, do his notes, oh, do his – you're shaking your head. Yes, oh, this, is, this look, is totally him. It was legend. I mean, look, like I said, we had more fun on the road in those days covering what was the old touring car championship and there was a tight crew. Mike Raymond, myself, Noel Brady, who was tape editor and subsequently associate producer and became producer after Mike departed, Ian Hurst, who was – uh, director, and along came the kid, Crompton. And we called him the kid. And he wasn't, it was only five minutes out of short pants, I'm convinced. I don't know how, he must have been, I guess he was 20, 21, I don't know, but he looked about 15. 16, yeah. 15. Um, and he was so intense and so focused on the most minor detail that nobody gave a rats about. <laughs> And we'd go and he'd disappear and he'd be down up and down pit lane talking to people, making notes, making notes, making notes. And we'd get back to the hotel and we'd say, right, oh, quick shower, boys, dining room, we'll be there. And, you know, tell me. Crompton would eat a burger and a plate of chips and then <laughs> be gone by 7.30 up to his room and he'd spend four or five hours 
studying his notes for the next day. And we'd be sitting around telling yarns and one thing or another. And at, where were we? Uh, Calder. Telecast at Calder. And we stayed in the city somewhere, I can't remember where, and drove out to the track on the Saturday morning for qualifying. And on the way, about halfway there, I said to, I think Brady was driving, I said, mate, I said, pull in over there, that shopping centre, about halfway out to Calder. I said, we've got to get to the tab. (laughs) So Brady and I were the only two punters in the group. Are we talking horses here or, oh, God, yeah. or anything? Yeah, anything no, horses, that moves. horses, horses, right, horses, right. horses. Brady and I were the only two punters, myself primarily. Um, but anyway, I said to Brady, you want to go 50-50? He said, yeah, mate. Yeah, he said, I'm good, I'm good for 100. I said, okay. So I walked into the tab and had $200 worth of bets, whatever the races were, Caulfield and Randwick. Off we went to the track. Didn't have time to listen to races. Too busy, blah, 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 blah. And Crompton's, oh, you blokes, you're going to end up in the poorhouse. Yeah, yeah, well, you blokes gamble, you lose all your money, you're going to be. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, on the way back, <clears throat> everybody piled, we had a couple of cars, everybody primarily, um, Crompton and Brady and company all piled into one car. And uh, I had a couple of other crew people in the car with me. And I, they all took off to the hotel and I detoured to the tab to see if we'd won any money. By the time I got back to the hotel, they were all sitting around the table in the dining room. I walked in the door and Crompton's, yeah, yeah, you lost all your money again. And so I had a bag with me and I just unzipped the bag and upended it in the middle of the table with $4,800 fell out and Crompton's eyes nearly fell out of his head. But it didn't it didn't convert him. <laughs> <laughs> Tried. Didn't quite get there. Didn't quite get there. But for all of his intensity, and we, I know we're smashing him up a bit because it's our job to give him a bit of a bit of a hard time. He brought a new level and, and he and obviously the other element was that I think a lot of people misunderstood. He was a racer already because of the the dirt bike yes. stuff as a kid in Ballarat. Yeah. And and of course in the minds of the viewer, he was the commentator that turned that into car racing. But he was already a racer before he went to telly. Telly was just mm. kind of the avenue that got him to the next step of Correct. where he wanted to go and to, to go race cars. <sighs> Crompton's, in terms of coverage, the best thing that's happened to motorsport. That's a big statement. That, there's a lot of things that have happened to motorsport in. Well, in terms of years. in terms of uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the technical media. aspects yeah, of yeah. the coverage. I'm talking about commentary. Uh, he's the best thing that's happened to motorsport coverage um, <laughs> in 40, 45 years. Uh, he's exceptional, and he's gotten better with age because, believe it or not, he has relaxed a little bit more. I can confirm <laughs> this a little bit, a little bit. There's been a slight relaxation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, look, he's 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 great for motorsport. Mm, no, he's he's totally. great for motorsport because, yes, he knows what he's talking about, but he's he's backed off a little bit on that technical intensity mm. and has absorbed a little bit more of the personality requirement uh, of the gig. But um, apart from that, I think the... The greatest asset that commentary has in motorsport, 
in recent years is Mark Larkham. Mm. I love him. I think he is great for the sport because he can translate technical crap into plain English. Mm. For all of those people that tune in to Bathurst who may only watch one round of supercars during the year or they might skim across a couple of telecasts during the year, but but there's a legion of people who watch Bathurst who don't regularly watch motorsport and and even people who watch supercars on a regular basis who are interested in the colour and movement and the entertainment but don't understand the technicalities, Mark Larkham is their man. Mm. Every time they cross to Larko, I'm riveted because I can understand what he's talking about. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And I think the other thing too is you don't really know where he's going with it because sometimes he doesn't either, which no, is the best right. thing about it. No, no, no. Whether he drops a brake disc that's flaming hot on his foot or he drops his iPad, he's, he's done a few things over the journey that have given us some That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it, though. It's, it's all off the cuff. Uh, but I'm sure, and I, I know for a fact, that, that he's as nervous as all get out and he goes over these things in his mind in the last 30 seconds before they cross to him. Well, I've got to say this. Get that. No, I better say that first and I'll do this. And then it all comes out. But it all comes out in understandable layman's language. He interprets complexities that I would not otherwise have a clue about. And a lot of other viewers would be in the same boat. It's the same black car, blue car just told in a different yes, way about yes, different yes, things. Yes, yes. You know, he's got a screen behind him to do a bit of stuff to, to flick, um, flick through. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego the number two, and oil, and find out. We talked before about Bathurst and 70s and what makes it special? What made it special then? Why is it still special? Why, you know, why am I writing a book about it? Why are people still talking about it flat out? What, it's so hard to capture. The, I think I wrote 80,000 words in that new book I've written this year, which you were very kind to spend some time with me to have a chat about. I don't reckon I've – I think I need to do another 80,000 to try to <laughs> – I don't think you can – those, those amazing classic sporting events, whether it's an Indy 500 or a Kentucky Derby or a Bathurst 1000, they're so special because you can't describe it in one word, one sentence, one fistful of anything. Like it's impossible. Well, it's developed a mythology all of its own based on its origins. It, it adopted, for want of a better word, an event that had nowhere to go, that had very, very limited public, in, broad public interest that was restricted to mostly to the people who drove the cars or serviced them, the mechanics and their families, basically. It had nowhere to go. So they took it to Bathurst. And Bathurst in those, the track at Bathurst in those days was a lot more daunting than it even is today. It was a, I shouldn't say it, it was a death trap. No I mean, is nothing. It, yeah. was, it was a goat track. Mm. And that's where the mythology, the legend was born. But 
that was built on over time by the long list of names and people and events that have built on that basis. And it's just grown bigger and bigger. The track has changed, the track is bigger, the track is arguably better because it's less dangerous. I mean, you would remember as a kid watching the telecast when there was an incident on the track and the bloody breakdown truck went out there and the oh, cars were still oh. racing past at 240 or 260 yeah. or 280 clicks. Which is mind-blowing now to, you know, to look at. And I know people curse the pace car and I do it myself you know, when I'm watching the pace car and I think, oh, shh, the freaking pace car. Here's a bloke who's worked his butt off to be 30 seconds or 27 seconds or 40 seconds ahead of the field and all of a sudden they're up his tailpipe. Mm. Right? Is that fair? Uh, no, it's not. But is it fair that some poor bugger should run up the back of a bloody? And how no one did back in the day? I know is unbelievable. Like the the rear of one of those tilt tray trucks. Yeah, you fire a windscreen into that, and you've got a, a DNF in more ways than one. It happens on metropolitan, yeah, suburban roads. You can see it on the news at least once a week. Mm. Some idiot trying to overtake somebody or passing on the left. Runs up the back of a, yeah. It happens. Yeah. yeah. How it didn't happen at those speeds and those events is is amazing. And as I said, the pace car, you just have to live with it. Mm, mm. It's, it's like part the, of, it's part of the the game. You know, it's like the concussion rule in rugby league these days. Mm. I mean, it had to come. Yeah. It's here to stay. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, that's how it is. That's how it is. That's how it is. So there was that growing, and so when you arrived on the motor racing channel seventeen, so we're talking late seventies here. So it's Brock and Moffat at its peak. It's Tiranas and Hardtop Falcons. All the different mixtures of little cars around the place. You know, sixty odd cars and bigger than Ben Hur. But when you think about it today, so the the, the race day broadcast was the the thing. There wasn't, you know, there'd be the the Hardy's Heroes half an hour. Highlights, which you guys would generally call the cut-down version. Well, that didn't come until that took. I think it was seventy-eight the first year yeah, that they had that. Yeah. Um, and here we are now. I mean, we have four full days from the minute <laughs> they hit the track on Thursday yeah. at seven fifty in the morning with the first support category race. There's all the stuff in the lead-up. There's a dedicated channel on Fox. There's seven with three days of coverage. There's just it just kept growing and growing. And the television was a huge part of growing the event. Clearly, in that period when sure. you were on the scene. Well, we didn't have all those outlets and all those commitments of four days of events, mm. right? You had practice and you had final practice Saturday morning and yet you had Saturday afternoon top ten shootout and then you had the car race on Sunday. But there was a lot of opposition in Bathurst generally to the race in the early days. I don't think, not so much when it first went to Bathurst, but as it grew and the telecast grew and colour television and people wanted to get there to be part of the action. Colour, people underestimate what colour television did for everything but, but for motorsport. Um, there was a fair amount of opposition in it, Bathurst. Was it kind of like because, like a, a country coastal town that has everyone turn up in summer but, and the locals yes. fill out, put out a place because of all these yes. visitors, same yes. thing. Um, and so the council and James Hardy in those days, sponsors, and 
to a degree, Channel 7, all three put their heads together and said, we've got to involve the people of Bathurst. So they put on all these rinky-dink little events, art exhibitions, uh, festival princess judging. and Who was the lead judge of that and the lead host? I, know I, I, I was never a judge. You were the host. I did, I did MC the event, yes. <laughs> um, there's a couple of stories I could tell you there too. Um, but we had to be involved in those and that's how I, I mean, I, I didn't want to be on a Saturday night involved in extracurricular activities. Uh, but that was part and parcel of of selling the event to keep Bathurst or those that were opposed. I mean, there were people in Bathurst who were gung ho mm. for the event, but there was a solid block of people who were not sold on it, and we had to sell them on it by supporting and covering, embracing them too. And, 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 and yeah. but they formed part of the telecast in those. The hardest part of any telecast, whether it's motor racing or anything else is the first hour or the first two hours before the event actually starts. That's the hardest. That's hard freaking work. And that we used to go on air at 8 o'clock in the morning. The race started at 10, hmm. right? two hours. Until the cars come out onto the track with the Marlborough girls and whatever else. Marching uh, bands. Yeah, and there's no the action. Precision stunt, stunt driving team yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's no action until that happens. But those were in the days too where they didn't have support category racing. That's right. Now, now it's a big part of it. There's two it or three categories one-off. that would race Sunday morning before the yeah, race. No, it was yeah. a one-off event, mm. a one-off event. Um, but f- f- filling it even even all of that marching band and gentlemen start your engines and all that stuff and the parade, they used to do a parade lap sitting in the back of vintage cars and Miss Bathurst used to sit there and wave and all that sort of stuff. All of that's hard work. And the depending on, okay, I can't remember now, but we used to have five or six pre-recorded packages that ran from anywhere from 90 seconds to four, four and a half minutes. Uh, setting the scene, background stuff on different drivers, different cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, just hard work to put all those things together. And the greatest relief in the world was when they dropped the green flag and the car race started. <laughs> uh, no, look, they were great days. They were great days. We worked with, with limited um, facilities compared to what they've got today. But like I said before, it was an adventure. I mean, the year of the strike. I was going to ask you about this. Oh, boy. 1980, I think it was? Yeah. 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 Uh, We had television executives, not Ted Thomas, but (laughs) Jeff Healy and all everybody else, uh, pulling cables and manning cameras. And, and why was there a strike? What, who was striking? What were they striking uh, about? Camera guy. Well, don't ask me what, who, what union or unions or staff associations were involved, but they were unhappy and I don't even remember the details of why they were unhappy. But they weren't there, so everybody else had to, to muck in. Correct. A lot of them were there but just not just refusing to do the job that they were supposed to be doing. So we had all these executives pulling cable and manning cameras and Christ knows what. But there were certain things that they couldn't 
technically, physically weren't capable of doing. So when we did the top ten Hardy's hero thing, we recorded it in Sydney. Oh, not in Bathurst? No. Oh, so what, chop it back? Yeah. Mike and I, we recorded, they recorded it in Sydney, Mike and I sitting up in the comedy box with pencil and paper, scribbling notes, scribbling notes, and scribbling notes. In these notes. days the shootout was on Saturday morning, not Saturday afternoon. That's correct. Now. Yeah, That's yeah. correct. Um, as soon as it was over, Mike and I rushed across to the infield, jumped in the chopper. The chopper flew us back to Sydney, but the chopper then had to return to Bathurst because it couldn't fly in, in the dark. Right? So we walked into the studio um, I think it went to air. I think it was only a half hour and it went to air at 5.30. 5.30, yes, the lead into the news. Yeah, in the, other markets it was on of a night time. Correct. Or something. Yeah, yeah. So by the time we get back in the chopper to Sydney, it's four something, I can't remember exactly, up to the studio and Mike's got a page of scribbled notes and I've got a page of scribbled notes and we're looking, we want to have a look at the, what the, the edited package so we know what bits of been chopped out, what bits yeah, have been left in. the full lap. Right? In those days, the, the drivers got two goes each, which was... Correct. Yeah. But they're having difficulty for reasons unbeknownst to me. But anyway, they finally get it edited and it's 5.01. Oh, we're go- close to air time. It's going right? to air at 5.30. So they said, we haven't got time to run it through. You'll just have to wing it. <laughs> so we said, roll tape, bang, at 5.01 or 5.02, whatever it was, because the package, what well, didn't run 30 minutes, it only ran 20. Take out the ad breaks. Whatever. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and we voiceovered this on the fly and we finished it at 5.29. <laughs> and they re-spooled and hit the button at 5.30 and put it to air well, Mike and I raced out the back, jumped into a cab, went to Bankstown Airport and got into a two-seater and took off to fly to Bathurst and we flew towards Katoomba into the blackest, meanest-looking thunderstorm coming in from the west that you could imagine. It was a hell of a ride. And no disrespect <coughs> to Mike Raymond, he was a big man. He was. And he and the pilot were sitting on the same side of the aeroplane and I'm sitting on the <laughs> other side... A little bit of a lead. <laughs> oh. uh, but we got back there and we got to air. And, um, but No one knew a thing had been potentially close to disaster. No, that's correct. No idea at all. Yeah, yeah. Everyone just tuned in and hello that, and look, welcome. That was all part of the, the fun. Like I said, more adventures and more fun and those openers that I used to do, that all came about by accident. It, in a, uh, 85, it must have been 85, there was a touring car around Oran Park and I said to Mike, Mike said, oh, what are we going to do for an opener? He said, I know. He said, um, that horse place, um, I don't know, it doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, El Caballo Blanco, <laughs> where they've got the Spanish dancing horses. It's just next, it's just down the road from Oran Park. That says quality television like nothing else. Yeah. So... Okay, so we all pile into the car and we go down there. I've got no idea what Mike's got in mind. Anyway, the bloke comes out dressed up in his thing over in his Spanish gear and the and the horse and all that. He says, um, "Hey, right." He said, "Wilco." He said, uh, "He said you could do this on horseback." 
I said, what? He said, yeah, he said you could, hello and welcome. I said, oh, all right. He said, it doesn't have to be long. He said about 30 seconds. Hello, welcome. This is that and this is that and a top qualifier and it's going to be great. And here's Mike Rand. I said, oh, all right. He said, but you'll have to put the gear on. <laughs> and he's not talking a red jacket, is he? No, no, no. So I've got the vest and the hat and the whole thing and I get on the horse and I said to the Spanish, I presume he was Spanish. <laughs> I don't <was> know. <laughs> I said to the bloke, I said, like, this is what I'm going to do. I said, it's going to be 30, 35 seconds and then I'll ultimately I'll say X, Y, Z at the finish. I said, but I said, I can't just sit here on this horse looking like, you know, a sack of potatoes. I said, I want to do something special at the finish. He said, I got you. Leave it to me. So I get through this 30-odd seconds and I said, now let's get to the thing I action with my... And as I said that, he's clicked his fingers and the horse has gone up on its hind legs like this. <laughs> oh, sensation. Mike, lo- Mike loved it. Mike loved it. And then... Next race meeting, uh, he said, righto, hey, Wilco, what are you going to do this? Oh. Yeah, this wasn't a one-off. This has actually started something. Yeah, that started something. And so it went on from there to Ned Kelly at Winton, yeah. Lawrence of Arabia at Wanneroo. Um, it was the casino at Surface Paradise. Casino at Surface See, uh, but, but this is what I think viewers liked about it and the drivers liked about it. Same with the Ned Kelly thing. We had uh, Brock, not Moffat. <laughs> it's too frivolous for Moffat. Yeah. <laughs> we had Brock, Jim Richards, uh, Dick I, Johnson. I Robbie Francovic might have Robbie been there Francivic, too, the Volvo driver. Yeah, um, and George Fury yeah. and about, about six or seven of the guys. We had them on horseback uh, as dressed up, well, supposedly had driver's uniforms on as bushrangers in the Ned Kelly thing down at Winton. We had him in driver's uniform sitting around the roulette table with me as the dealer. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, at the casino. Um, um, what else did we do? Wasn't there one in the lake at Lakeside? You emerged. Oh, James Bond, yeah, 007. <laughs> oh, my God. That was that was a, that was a health risk, surely. Well, yeah, because it wasn't the lake. The lake, we'd planned it 12 months in advance and I'd organised a wetsuit and the whole deal flew up to Brisbane. The rest of the crew were there a day before me because I had other news commitments. And uh, I get out to Lakeside and uh, Brady and Ian Hurst said, uh, bad news, Wilco. I said, why? What's up? They said, the lake's dry. Oh. Like the year before we'd had... F- I was going to say, there was a couple of years that the place flooded out and the rounds were delayed. Yeah. The, the, the main strait was underwater <laughs> and, and the meeting had been cancelled. But this year... <laughs> There's no, you could walk out 150 metres before you met mud. It was incredible. So I thought, bloody, I said, what are we going to do? Ian Hurst said, don't worry. He said, There's a dam. He said, over the back of the circuit. He said, uh, He said, people will never know the difference, right? Lake, water, right? Looks the same, yeah. Looks the same. So we pile in the car and we drive over the hill to this dam. It's about, oh, I don't know, 30. Meters across, thirty by thirty, maybe a bit more, forty meters. Uh, but except for a small patch 
about five metres in circumference. In the middle, it's all bloody green weed. Not good for telly. No. And, and the surrounds are mud, been trampled in by cows. God knows what else they had there. So it's not looking very lakey is probably what we're... Oh, well, look, it, it, it was a little corner of the lake. We were pretending it was a little corner <laughs> of the lake, not the whole lake. So I get into the... I've got the red jacket on under the... Of course. thing, right? And I get into the wetsuit and I get down to the edge of the thing and I realise then that the mud is so thick, glutinous, I can't wear flippers. They're just going to get stuck. You, you yeah. don't know. But intertwined in all the mud where all the cattle have been trampling is barbed wire and Christ knows what else. So I managed to get over the barbed wire and I managed to get in and I managed to wade out, I don't know, um, 15 metres, something like that, 20 metres. And they said, righto, Wilco, disappear under the water and then pop up and say hello and welcome. I said, hang on a minute. They said, what, what's, what's the matter? And by this time I'm up to my chest in water, surrounded by green weed. I said, I'm up to my waist, almost, in mud. I said, there's only two and a half foot of water here. I said, it's all mud. And they said, well, can't you just duck down and then <laughs> pop up again? And I said, oh, hang on a minute. I've got to get rid of the green. I'm trying to brush away all this green weed so that it's actual water. This is a lot of effort for 25 oh, seconds of television, mate. by the oh, way. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, and this is in whatever month it was, June, July, whatever it was. It's freezing bloody cold and it's freezing in the water, I can tell you, even with a wetsuit on. So down I go. Up I pop and they're all falling over laughing because I've got three and a half kilos of green weed hanging off my head. Well, we did take one, take two, take three, take four, take five, take six, take seven. And we get up to a take 12 or 13 or something and finally it looks like we've nailed it. I pop up and there's Crompton standing on the edge of the water urinating in the lake. (laughs) I said, Crompton, you bastard. So take 17. We finally got it to where it was at least vaguely acceptable. <laughs> and they say television is a glamorous art form. And I've staggered out of the water through the bloody mud, coughing and spluttering. I've swallowed six litres of bloody water out of the wetsuit. And what was his name, the promoter there? At Lakeside. Uh, oh, God. It's gone out of my brain. Mental blank. Anyway, he's come over in a little trike. He's come over the hill. He said, what are you blokes up to? Now, you're just filming, filming an opener for the – he said, you haven't been in there. I said, yeah. He said, mate, he said, that's the sewage settlement pond. Oh. Well, <laughs> we went back to the pub and I reckon I drank six bottles of wine to try and kill the taste of it. But – Look, here we are still talking about it in 2023. Yeah, look, they were, they were fun. They were that fun. one, not so much. The other ones were probably... Well, in hindsight, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> At Bathurst one year, um, I don't remember what year, somewhere in the late 80s, I guess it would have been, uh, I said to Mike, I said, I've got a great idea. Mike and Jeff Healy... Um, 
Noel Brady. I said, I've got a great idea for the opener. Mike said, yeah, what? I said, how about, I said, I get up on Skyline. I said, and hang glide off Skyline and coming down to pit straight and do the opener like hang glide. While you're actually uh, Yeah. Hello along. and welcome to Mount Panera. Jeff Healy said, you're mad, Wilker. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't do it. Um, Probably for good reason too. <laughs> Could you imagine the OHNS on that these days? Oh, my <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well, on any of those well, yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, the Ned Kelly thing, we went out into the scrub out the back of Winton somewhere. We rounded up half a dozen horses for for the drivers and they come galloping around the bend or trotting around the bend and I popped out from behind a tree with seven and a half kilos of iron bucket on my head and, and a pop gun, bail up my buckos. And we did the thing and they disperse and we give the horses back and get back to the truck and uh, Brady comes out and he said, hey, Wilco, he said, can't use it. He said, the audio, he said, is, is awful. He said, just can't use it. Because you had the metal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can't use it. It's just not useful. I said, well, we'll fake it. He said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, give me a polystyrene cup. And I walked into the little audio booth that we had and I knew what I'd said. It was pretty much, you know, I can't remember what it was now, but uh, it was imprinted on my memory. Um, and I just did it, but it was it was it was muffled but usable. Yeah, and we just dubbed that in and 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 got away with it. The magic of television. You yeah. can do anything, can't you? you the, can do anything. Well, the first time we ever went to Winton when first, Seven first signed. Eighty-five. Yeah. Yeah. Early eighty-five. Must have been February, March. Uh, it was so short notice, there was no accommodation available. And the nearest we could stay was Albury. Which is, if you don't know your Winton and your Albury, an hour, hour oh, and a bit, a bit, bit more. In those days it was oh, yeah, two. True, true. It'd be a hike. But Mike and Brady and Ian Hurst uh, flew or drove, I can't remember, ahead of me because I had other news commitments. And um, I flew down on the Friday and <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't admit this, I shouldn't admit to this. On Friday night we had a very lengthy dinner. Is that code for something? Yes. We had a very lengthy and enjoyable dinner and we agreed that we would meet at the, in the foyer and drive leave it for the track at 8 o'clock in the morning to do qualifying, etc. And Mike had arranged with the promoter to have the qualifying done and finished early because we had to get back to Albury to edit and uh, file a news story and so on and so forth. And Mike also wanted to pre-record the Sunday opener on the Saturday straight after qualifying. So I woke up on the floor. From a very big dinner. From a very big dinner at five minutes past eight. 
I thought, oh, Christ. And I scrambled into my clothes, stuck my head under a cold tap, rushed down just in time to see a car full of people, Raymond, Brady and uh, Ian Hurst, driving off. See you at the track, Wilco. The keys to the other car at the desk. Well, I was in no fit. It was a very big dinner. State, yes. <laughs> so I drove to Winton by myself and the noise, the cars, oh, God almighty, drove me nuts. Anyway, finally it was all over and I said, right, let's get back to the pub. He said, hang on a minute. He said, we've got to record the opener for tomorrow. He said, right, I will come. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, I've got the top ten cars in descending order, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, all lined up on the on the grid. He said, and all the driver of each car sitting on the bonnet with their helmet on their lap, he said, and you start at number 11. Well, there's no number 11. Hello and welcome. And just walk down and go through the qualifying order and end up at the front of the grid and say, no, 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 no now here's my crown. You're not feeling all the best at this stage, let's put it that way. Sure. So I thought, never refuse a combat assignment. There it is again. Okay. There it is again. Yeah. So I took a deep breath and <laughs> I uh, went over and over it in my head like Mark Larkham. And I kicked off and I did it in one hit and we used it the next day. But anyway, while I was sort of recovering from that, the three of them jumped in a car and buggered off again and left me to my own devices. But I had the last laugh because I got in the car and I drove very gingerly within the speed limit uh, and turned off at Wangaratta, walked into the tab and I had a couple of hundred dollars worth of bets. And by the time I got to um, Wodonga, the races I bet on had been run and yet because this is a Victorian tab I'm talking about and tickets are not cashable in New South Wales. So I stopped in Wodonga. Before you get to the border yes. where Aubrey is the other side. Yeah, yeah. And for my $200, collected about 850 <laughs> I drove across the border to Aubrey and went into the tab and reinvested that money <laughs> on the trots that night. And, of course, those tickets were cashable anywhere in New South Wales and I collected my winnings when I got back to Sydney. <laughs> so the Winton round of the first <laughs> ever Australian Touring Car Championship sees it on seven. Was a good one for uh, you in some ways. Well, it was good. I'll tell you a funny story <laughs> that doesn't involve – well, it does to a degree. Um, one year at Bathurst, Mike said to me – Wilco, he said uh, – I need you to include in your Bathurst roundup. We had to do all of these Bathurst feel-good stories. He said there's um, an art exhibition opening at Bathurst Art Gallery tonight, Saturday night. Um, he said, I want you to do the do a part of the story there, you know, hello and welcome. Right? I said, okay, Mike, okay, okay. He said, oh, he said, be good if you could wear a dinner suit. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't bring one actually. I said, no, all right, okay, I'll take care of it. This was on the Friday, so I slipped downtown to a menswear place 
And I walked in and I said to the bloke, I need a dinner suit. And he said, oh, he said, when for? I said, tomorrow night. He said, oh, mate, he said, you've got Buckley's. He said, Festival Princess, everything's happening tomorrow night. He said, can't help you. I said, oh, well, look, I need it for Channel 7 for the telecom. Oh, he said, hang on a minute, hang on. He went out the back and he came back. He said, look, he said, I've got one here. He said, but he said, it needs alterations. He said, uh, he said, leave it with me. He said, and I'll see if I can get it done for you. I said, great. I said, I'll be back. I said, to pick it up. I said, five o'clock tomorrow afternoon. He said, I won't be here. Oh, I said, oh. He said, no, no, no. He said, I've got to close up early. He said, I've got to leave. I've got to drive down to Sydney. He said, I'm, I've got an interest in a horse that's running in the Epsom Handicap tomorrow. I said, oh. Hello. Oh. Hello. <laughs> he said, yeah, me and my partner have got a horse in the ring. And so I don't want to put the word on him for you know, a tip or anything. Well, yeah, it's yeah, imp- yeah. impolite yeah, to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm trying to draw it out of him with no success whatsoever. So finally I gave up and I said, well, look, I said, well, when can I pick it up? He said, you'll have to be here by four. I said, all right, okay. I said, well, good luck with the horse tomorrow. He said, oh, yeah, he said, we'll need it. He said, it's the first reserve. He said, it may not get a start. So I knew straight away what the horse would be and I zipped straight into the tab on the way back to the track and I had a few dollars on this horse. It was 66 to 1. And at that stage, not in the race. And not in the race. Right? Therefore, odds are pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So I get back to the track and I said to Ian Hurst and Brady, who used to have an occasional bet, I said, listen, I said, I, I exaggerated a little. I said, I just had a tip I said, for a horse, I said, that may get a start tomorrow. And so we finished up at the track and on the way back to the pub before we went out for dinner, I zipped into the uh, tab again and uh, it's still- I love wa- how you went to the tab before you got the suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Priorities. Uh, I'd had another bet and then, of course, on the Saturday morning there was a scratching and the horse was in the race. So on the way to the track, I went to the tab and on the way back to pick up the suit, I had another bet and by this time a dozen or so people on the crew had had a bet. Went and picked up the suit. Bugger me, the horse won. And it didn't pay 66 to 1 um, but it paid uh, 40, 40-something, 40 $48 or 50-odd dollars. Still good. For Still the win. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a life, don't you? You're not just there to go car racing and talk about understeer and oversteer. You've got to have a bit of fun. Well, life was a bit frenetic in those days. I mean, yeah. I've slowed down a bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> since then. <laughs> a big thank you to Wilco for taking the time to sit down with me as a kid of the 80s and the 90s who lapped up every second of those Channel 7 touring car telecasts. It was a real thrill to sit down with him and spend some time talking about that great period of motorsport TV broadcasting. Now, you might be thinking, ah, that's a shame. Part one's done. I've got good news, though. There's part two. That's really good. The best part about this, though, is that we cover all sorts of other stuff, including your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions. That's all on part two. It drops with plenty more stories next week, and I hope you can join me when that one goes live. In the meantime, go through the back catalogue, listen to some of our previous pods before that next episode, and I'll be back next week with another edition of the V8 Salute podcast polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. 
Simply type in your rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search rego, the number two, and oil and find out.